I'll just uh, go over uh, the announcements. The main announcement is that the Chafer Conference starts on Monday, and we have not made any changes in relation to attendance simply because all of our logistics are all geared to the number that we have uh, have limited it to. And so it's just not possible at this late date to just turn everything into upside down and, and change anything. So the conference starts about 1.30 on Monday afternoon. Those who are signed up can come. We ask that nobody just show up or, and um, because we're just not going to have room. And then we'll be live streaming it. And then the the sessions will all be posted within a, a few hours. So we need a few men to stay after class on uh, Sunday um, so that we can uh, set up tables for the conference. Also, next Saturday, a week from this Saturday, on March 13th, we'll have our uh, monthly men's prayer breakfast and also our deacons meeting. So that should take care of that. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we will begin with a few moments of silent prayer to make sure that we are in right relationship to the Lord, that uh, we should be keeping short accounts with sin and confessing sin along the way, but sometimes we uh, need to do that right before class just to make sure we're walking with the Lord. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're so thankful that we have you to lean on. You are our strength. You are a tower, our rock. Father, that you sustain us with your grace. We have God, the Holy Spirit, who indwells us, fills us, enables us to understand and apply your word, brings it to our consciousness. Father, we're just so thankful for all that you have given us. And Father, we live in a world probably not much different from any other generation, but it's just more out in the open, that is filled with people who are hostile toward you, hostile to those who represent you, who wish to destroy the impact of Christianity in this country. And Father, we are to respond to them in kindness and gentleness and graciousness and love, and that just can't, is not something that comes naturally. But, Father, we need to represent you and your grace to them, not in a judgmental fashion, which is so often the case with self-righteous Christians, and they've created a really bad name and a lot of confusion, especially in the topic we're dealing with tonight. We pray that we might come to understand the realities of what your word teaches about sin and about homosexuality, and also that we might we might recognize that, that it's a sin like every other sin, and the solution is in your word and walking with you in the light of your word. Father, pray that you would help us to understand what we're studying this evening. In Christ's name, amen.
So as we're continuing our study in 2 Peter uh, chapter 2, we've come to the section where Peter uses this illustration of the judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah as an illustration of the certainty of God's judgment, but it is also linked, and importantly so, with deliverance, because that's what uh, Peter is illustrating, is that God judges sin, but he also delivers the righteous. He delivers believers. And they don't have to be a believer that is walking with the Lord like Noah in the first illustration. Noah was walking with the Lord, and as we studied He was called a preacher of righteousness. So he's teaching people before the flood, calling them to trust in God and the promise of God so that they can receive the righteousness of God and be saved. And they would have imputed righteousness. But what we have in the next example is Peter making a point of stating that uh, he delivered righteous Lot. And as we've seen in the last couple of weeks, that means that that Lot, despite his sin and behavior and the fact that he was not concerned about the things of God at all, he was concerned about his own physical uh, pleasures and comfort, that he was still a believer. and He's identified as righteous Lot. And so he is living in the midst of an extremely pagan environment, where there's much hostility to any form of righteousness because it is in Sodom. And there's a question that has come up in our uh, culture because of the pressure that has come from the LGBTQP community over the last uh, 30 or 40 years that their sin really wasn't a sin of homosexuality. That homosexuality really isn't a sin because we're born that way. And how could we be condemned because that's just the way we're born? So that's why I've titled this lesson, Sodom, What Was the Sin? And we will get to that. We're going to go through these, uh, these passages. So I want you to open your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 19. Genesis chapter 19. And we're going to work our way through the passage to understand just exactly what the scripture says and what it indicates and the context and purpose as we've looked at in the past uh, couple of lessons and go through and see just exactly what took place, especially in the first 11 verses. But to get this contextualized in relation to what Peter is teaching, that there is judgment and deliverance, we have to carry the uh, overview of the passage uh, down to at least verse 23, uh, 22. Okay, so what has happened? What is the context? We have to understand that the broad context here is God calling out Abraham And God is going to build a new people through Abraham, through his son Isaac, and then his grandson uh, Jacob, and then his uh, 12 sons are the progenitors of the 12 tribes of Israel. So the last part of Genesis is all about the line of the seed. And one of the themes that runs through here is the protection, God's protection of the line of the seed. And so we have a 
one thing that we have is a new period of time in human history that begins with God's calling of Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, and we call that a, a dispensation. And this is a new way God is going to administer history, and now it is going to be through the Jewish people. And one of the things that you can observe if you go through Scripture is that at the beginning of uh, various uh, dispensations, when God is changing things, God is severe in his punishment of those who are disobedient. It's not how God deals with those sins all the way through, but it is what God does at the very beginning. So we can think about what happened at the beginning of the church age. The beginning of the church age, you had a husband and wife named Ananias and Sapphira, and they lied about, uh, they, they had sold their property, and they wanted the recognition that they were giving the, all of the proceeds uh, to the church, and they were holding some back for themselves. Now, there was nothing wrong with that. But they lied about it, and they lied to the Holy Spirit. And as a result, God took their life instantly, sent unto death. It was a strong lesson to this new church in its infancy, this new entity. You go back to the law, the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. There were several incidences where God harshly disciplined the Israelites, Moses is up on Mount Sinai receiving the law. The people get bored. He's been up there 40 days, 40 nights. And so they convince Aaron to melt down all their jewelry and build an idol. And they're going to have an orgy and worship this golden calf. And God comes down and, I mean, Moses comes down and God tells him to, uh, to take the life of those who were at the core of this rebellion. And there were two or three different rebellions that took place uh, following that at this beginning of the dispensation of the law. And you go back to the period of Abraham. And Abraham is called out in Genesis chapter 12. And what we have from Genesis 12 to Genesis 18 are God's, God's repetition to Abraham of the promise of his promise to uh, give Abraham a child with Sarah. And Isaac is born in chapter 21. And this incident of the destruction of Sodom occurs between the, the repetition, the last time of the repetition of the promise where God says that he will uh, return in a year and he is going to He's going to return in a year, and he at that time, Abraham will have a son. And then chapter 19 occurs. And part of the reason God judges this egregious sin this way, it's near the beginning of the dispensation, number one. Number two, it's to protect the seed that is about to be born. And it's through the line of the seed that the Messiah will ultimately come. So there's there's a rationale. You can't just lift this out of the Bible and say, well, oh, how horrible God is. Look at what he did to, uh, to Sodom. And then we are going to see how the rest of the Bible treats Sodom. So it begins in Genesis chapter 19, verse 1. Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate at Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them, and he bowed himself with his face toward 
the ground. Now, there's a couple of interesting things that you need to note about what is going on here. First of all, these two angels come, and we can't just start off with that. Where did in the world did they come from? That takes us back to the beginning of chapter 18 when the Lord, uh, sec- I believe second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ, comes in his pre-incarnate appearance with two angels. And they come and they look like they are men, males. They uh, eat, they drink, they rest. They have all of the physical features and actions and bodily functions of a human being. And those angels are depicted as men, as males in that chapter. Then as the men, verse 16 of chapter 18 We read, then the men arose from there and looked toward Sodom. Now those men, that's a reference to the angels, but they are called men, and the Hebrew word there indicates that they are that they are males. It's it's the word ish, it's in the plural, and it can indicate a husband or it indicate a male. Or in some cases, if the context fits, it's just talking about a human being in the context of animals or some other kind of creature. And so uh, the Lord, second person of the Trinity, pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ, is depicted as having a conversation with himself or possibly uh, with those two angels, and he says, shall I hide from Abraham what I am doing? And since he goes on and says, since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him, for I have known him in order that he may uh, command his children and his household after him, that they keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice, that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. So the focal point here is on the righteousness and the justice of God. And often what you find from those who do not take the Bible at uh, literally and do not truly understand it, they try to create a conflict between the righteousness of God and the love of God. But right here we see God's grace, which is a manifestation of his love, grace in action in the midst of his, ap- of his application of his uh, justice. Remember, righteousness is the absolute standard of God's character, and justice is the application of that standard to his creatures. And so he is going to inform Abraham that that this great sin in Sodom and Gomorrah has come to the point where it has to be dealt with. And so he's going to go down and he's going to uh, send these two men to bring judgment there, And so Abraham raises the question in verse 23, would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Now the text emphasizes God's righteousness and justice in verse 19. And so Abraham now says, are you going to destroy the righteous along with the wicked? And he gives him an example. He starts with 50. If there were 50 there, would you save the the city? And God says, yes, he would. And so then Abraham says, well, I don't want to be too, uh, too forward, but what if there were five less? Would it be 45? And so he works his way down from 45 to 40 to 30 and then down to 20 and then to 10. And in each case, the Lord says that he would 
uh, he would deliver them. So this establishes the grace of God in relationship to his righteousness and justice, and he will deliver Lot because Lot is righteous. He's not living like a righteous man, but he is righteous. And so these two angels are sent to Sodom to rescue or to save or to deliver uh, Lot. And that's the first thing we should note in this verse. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening. Now, this would be the time of having a meal, and they would be ex- expecting some hospitality. But Lot's not home yet. Lot is sitting in the gate of Sodom. Now, that's important because in the ancient world, the city gates were where the business was taken taken care of. It's where uh, the leaders of the town would meet if there were judicial problems, people had conflicts with one another, they could bring it to the leaders to uh, resolve the problem, uh, maybe adjudicate a civil offense or a criminal offense. But what we have here shows us Lot is in the gate. That shows us he's a, he is a leader in the, in the community of Sodom. He is respected, and he is someone that they would turn to for advice and counsel. So Lot is sitting in the gate of Sodom, and then when Lot saw them, he recognizes something about them. Now, we don't know if he knows they're angels, but he recognizes that they are men of importance, men of stature, men of significance. And so he rises and he shows, uh, the, he defers to them, he shows respect for them. He bows down with his face toward the ground. He shows uh, all of the decorum of a man of his position to someone who is also of a noble or respected position. And so this sets the stage. And he then speaks to them in verse 2 and says, Here now, my lords, notice he addresses them with a tremendous amount of respect uh, my my lords, please turn into your servant's house and spend the night. So he is showing hospitality. He greets them, he welcomes them, and he offers for them to come in. He provides water for them to wash their feet. And then he says, come in, spend the night. He does not want them to spend the night out in public. We don't have time to go through this, but if you were to take a comparison, and I did this, before in Judges 19 and do a comparison of what happens in uh, in chapter 19 of Genesis and chapter 19 of Judges where you have a similar incident taking place in uh, Gibeah, the town that will eventually be Saul's birthplace. This, um, the same kind of thing happens. It's just a horrible situation involving homosexual sin. And he knows what these people in Sodom are like, so he doesn't want them staying out in public. The same thing happens with the Levite and his concubine in Leviticus, I mean, in uh, Judges 19. They come in and they are welcomed into the house and told, do not stay out and sleep out in the public square, which is apparently where travelers normally uh, would spend the night. So Lot tells them, come in. Uh, take care of you, wash your feet, then you may rise early and go on your way. And they say, no, we're going to stay in the square. And he insists, 
strongly. It's a very strong word. He urges them. He puts pressure on them. He presses them. That's the Hebrew word patsar. And he insists strongly. So he is not going to let them spend the night out in public. And then they turned into him and entered his house. And I thought the next word was interesting. Then he made a feast for them. The Hebrew word is mishta, which indicates a large meal, a banquet. Now, I pointed this out when I taught through chapter 18 before, when Abraham invited the two angels and, and the Lord in to eat with him, that he slaughtered a calf, he has to eviscerate the calf, he has to skin it, he has to uh, butcher it, he has to do all that preparation, build a fire. Of course, he had servants and others who were doing it, but this takes time. And so... Uh, Lot is doing the same thing. It's taking some time, a couple of hours maybe, to uh, prepare everything. They probably had a fire going, and he's going to make unleavened bread because there's not enough time for it to rise. And so he's going to provide a uh, sumptuous meal for his guests. So he is showing them uh, great hospitality. And this, there's a point of application here, is even carnal believers, even believers that are just concerned about their own comfort and their their own um, and being associated with what they think are the right people, they can be generous, they can be hospitable, they can be nice, they can be welcoming, but at the whole time they're just out of fellowship and not walking with the Lord. So that's what Lot is doing. He's a he's a rebellious believer and he's living out of fellowship, but he can still be nice, and he can still do good things, even though they have no uh, no spiritual value. Now, the next verse, verse 4, we read, Now, before they lay down, no, so it's gotten late now. It's 10 or 11 o'clock at night. Then the men of Sodom, both old and young, all the people from every quarter surrounded the house. Now, it's primarily the men of Sodom, from young teenagers to old men, and they are surrounding the house, all of them. So you have quite a crowd that is gathering around, and they do not have good intentions, and Lot knows that. And they call to Lot, and they say, where are the men who came to you tonight. Now notice, in verse 1, they're called angels. And I pointed this out back in chapter 18. They're called angels and men. The term is males. And it's the same word that's used for the men of Sodom. Four times in this passage, they are referred to as men, and twice they are referred to as angels. Now, just as an aside, that helps us in some uh, points in understanding angels that they always appear in the Bible as human males. And they don't appear as women. They don't appear as something that's androgynous. They don't appear as some other kind of gender. They always appear as males. And the text is making a point here that it's the males of Sodom and these angels appear as males. And so they, the men of Sodom want these men to come out. And now the next line reads, bring them out to us that we may know them carnally. 
Now, them and carnally is in italics in most translations because that's not in the original Hebrew. But it's implied. The word to know is used a number of times in Scripture, and we'll uh, look at it a little bit later as well. But this is a word that is used at least 15 times in the Old Testament to refer to sexual intimacy, usually between a man and a woman. And so they are asking for that. Now, the reason I bring this up is because there are those who object and say, well, no, that's not what it says. They just wanted to have a friendly conversation and get to know the visitors. So you have to look at the text to see if that is indeed what is going on here. In 2 Peter 7, we have the New Testament explanation of what is going on here. And it fits with the, with the use of that word, yada, here in some of its uses for sexual intimacy. In 2 Peter 2, 7, we're told that God delivered righteous Lot. And then we're told something about Lot. He is called righteous Lot, but he's not living righteously. But there's something about his surroundings that don't sit well with him. If you remember the story back in Genesis chapter 13, uh, Lot's herdsmen and Abraham's herdsmen weren't getting along together, and so they separated, and Abraham, as uh, very generously told Lot, you pick the part of the land where you wish to live, and then I will take the rest. And Lot said, oh, I can, I can look down there, and I can see Sodom from here, and that's a beautiful, lush, well-watered valley all along the Jordan going down to the Dead Sea, and that's where I want to live. That is where the wealthy people live. And that, that seems to be the indication that this was an affluent area, and he wanted to go where there was good social life and where there were a lot of people and where he would be uh, with those who were successful. And so he, um, but once he gets down there, he is oppressed. There is something about his surroundings that weighs on his soul because he knows the truth and he knows this is not right. And their conduct is described by two words in the text. First of all, it's licentious. That's the word that's on the left in the uh, light lavender panel, aselgea. And this is a word that means licentious, which means that you feel like you have a license to sin. You're just going to sin with impunity. And also the idea of being brutal. It has the idea of lascivious debauchery sexual excess, the absence of any restraint, no norms or standards as far as sexual conduct is concerned, just a free reign of immorality. It indicates an insatiable desire for pleasure of all kinds, mostly sexual. So he is oppressed by this licentious, lascivious, debauched lifestyle all around him, And it's described as the conduct of the wicked. And the word there for wicked is ah 
thesmos. The A at the beginning, that alpha at the beginning in the Greek, is what is comparable to the UN prefix we have in English. It negates the word. So thesmos has to do with something that is moral, something that is principled, and athesmos is just the opposite. It describes somebody lawless, licentious, unprincipled, moral, and that they are evil and wicked. In the Greek, that's kakos, also is a synonym of this. It's some that's inherent, someone that is inherently bad. And so he is weighed down by this living amongst these wicked, licentious people. And then verse 8 of Second Peter 2 says, For that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. And uh, the word there that is translated lawless is our is the Greek word anamas. Namas is the word for for law. You put the a in front of it, same as the athesmas. You put the alpha in front of it, it negates it. So the word is anasmas. They're lawless. Now it's very close in meaning to a word that we derive from that in English called antinomianism. Anti, it just takes the place of ah, and it's the same thing except it indicates uh, being against something. And namas is law, so it's against law. These are people who want to do whatever's right in their own eyes, and they can't submit to authority, can't submit to a standard of morality, can't uh, submit to a standard of righteousness, and so they are disobedient. And that's what's going on here. This is a lawless world. They want to make up uh, their own rules about life, and they don't care what the Creator has designed. They are in complete rebellion against God. And this is exactly what we see in our own culture. We have created a culture the way it has historically developed. It has uh, moved since World War II, the middle of the 20th century, it has moved into uh, outright antinomianism. There was the rebelliousness of the 60s. They rejected the standards. Those rebels of the 60s rejected the historic traditions of this country and wished to overturn them. And many of them grew up to go into uh, the halls of power in academia as well as in politics and in business. And if we look at the leaders in, uh, in Washington, D.C., we look at the leaders who are running these big tech companies, we look at other leaders, they came out of that antinomian, rebellious generation of the 60s, and now they are in their... Uh, 60s to 70s to early 80s, and they are seeking to put into place the the vision that they had as young rebels back in the 60s. And what we've seen throughout this whole transition is the overturning in this country of the divine institutions, divine absolutes, and the Word of God. So here's Lot, a righteous man, 
He's like a lot of us. He's like a lot of Christians in the U.S. Some Christians have completely compromised with the culture. They are willing. There's a lot of pastors, more and more pastors and churches and denominations are seeing splits over uh, the acceptance of homosexuality, the acceptance of uh, lesbianism in the church, in the clergy, ordaining homosexuals and having homosexual marriages and conducting homosexual marriages. And hardly a month goes by that I don't hear of someone else in what was thought to have been a somewhat conservative denomination who has now flipped their position and they're saying it's just fine. We understand they were born that way and we have to have them come into to our congregation because they are all, have already compromised on the teaching about sin and the absolutes of Scripture. And that's what's, what, exactly what had happened to Lot. And it, it says in verse 8 that his, uh, it tormented his righteous soul. And this is a Greek word, basenizo, which means to torment somebody, to torture somebody, to examine somebody through uh, the use of pain and torture and so here it's the idea that, that internally there's this struggle going on inside of his soul because he witnesses their lawless deeds and deep down he knows that this is, this is not right. So these first five verses introduce us to the main, uh, the main characters in this drama. The two men, the angels, Lot, and then the men in Sodom. And so now we're going to see the action intensify. They've surrounded the house. They're yelling for Lot to bring the men out. It is getting out of control, and so Lot goes out to them through the doorway. You can just picture this. It's nighttime. They're out there. They would have torches and lanterns, and he's opening the door just enough to squeeze out so they don't push in. And he slips out and pulls it shut behind him. And he begins to barter with them and to beg them to go away. And he says, uh, don't act so wickedly. It's just the opposite of the hospitality that he has shown because they want to uh, basically gang rape these two guests that have come to him. And and some people will come along and say, well, that's the real problem. It wasn't homosexuality. It was rape. And we all know rape is wrong, no matter whether it's homosexual or heterosexual. And what we're going to see is that's not the problem at all. But that is exactly what they were going to do. And then we see how how Lot's values have been so corrupted himself. I mean, this is nothing you would ever want a father to do. He's going to bargain with his two daughters. He says, see, I have two daughters who haven't known a man. They're virgins. Please let me bring them out to you and you may do to them as you wish. He's going to just throw them, his two daughters, to this horrible crowd of, of violent men. Let me bring them out to you, and you may do to them as you wish. Now, what in the world kind of father would do that? It's someone whose values in their own soul have been so compromised and distorted 
that that he cannot respond to the crisis the way he should. But he re- he is at least trying to protect his visitors. So he says, do nothing to these men. Since this is the reason they have come under the shadow of my roof. What he means by that is the reason they're in my house is because I didn't want them out in the open where you would ravage them. And the response is that they are, the the crowd is going to close in on him. They're threatening him. They're intimidating him. And in verse 9, we read, and they said, stand back. Then they said, this one came in to stay here. Look, and by this one, they mean Lot. Look at this man. He came here and he's acting like our judge. He's condemning us for our actions. Who is he? We will deal worse with you, Lot, than with these men that are coming because you're acting so high and mighty and self-righteous. And so they began to press hard against the man, Lot. Notice again this emphasis. The writer is... It takes every opportunity to emphasize uh, the maleness of the characters. So they pressed hard against the man Lot and came near to break down the door. So they're just pushing him up against the door, and, and he's got nowhere to go. But then the men, verse 10, and these, these men are the angels again. This is the third time they're called the men reached out their hands and pulled Lot into the house and shut the door. They just opened it enough to get him and grab him and pull him in and slam the door shut. And then they do something that exposes who they really are. They strike these men blind who are outside the doorway. And small and great, didn't matter, old, young, whether they were influential or not, Everyone was struck blind, and they grew tired just trying to find the door. They're just as blind as they can be, and they're just running their hands all over the outside of the house, and they can't find the opening, can't find the doorway. And at that point, the angels put Lot on the spot and say, you have some decisions to make, and we're here to rescue you. And notice it says again, then the men say, this is the fourth time they're called men, males. The men said to Lot, have you anyone else here? Uh, Son-in-law, your sons, your daughters, whomever you have in this city, take them out of this place. Notice the grace of God to Lot, because Lot is righteous, and God has said he would uh, rescue them because, because he was righteous, even though he is not living righteously. God is there to deliver. Now, that's the point that Peter's making in 2 Peter chapter 2, is he's giving these as illustrations of God judging one group and delivering another group. And God judged the people who lived before the flood, and he delivered Noah and his family. Now, he is going to judge the men of Sodom, and he's going to deliver Lot and his family. And so then they explain what they're going to do in verse 13. For we will destroy this place because the outcry against them has grown great before the face of the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So they're there on a, on a mission of judgment. 
So now Lot, things must have calmed down because Lot is able to get out. And he goes and he speaks to his sons-in-law. So he had two, four daughters, two were married, two were virgins. And he's trying to convince them to leave. And he tells them what's happening. And they just think it's a joke. See, this is what happens in a culture that has rejected God and rejected absolutes, is that when a believer comes along and talks as if God is going to judge and if there's a really a God, truly a God, if there's really a heaven, if there's really a, a lake of fire, then what happens is we're just ridiculed. We're made fun of because they don't sense the truth of any of it and they've just completely rejected it. And that's what's happening here. And so his sons-in-law, he seemed to be joking, and they're laughing, and they just don't take him seriously. Well, time has gone by, and most of the night has gone by, and now the morning is dawning. And the angels, now they're angels again. Angels, then men four times, and then angels, and then... Uh, He says, um, the angels urged Lot to hurry, saying, Arise, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be consumed in the punishment of the city. So there were, there's Lot and his wife and his two daughters. That's four of them, and there were four others. So there were as many as eight to begin with, and now the others have turned down the offer of deliverance, the the offer of salvation, and it's going to be Lot and his two daughters and his wife. And so the angels say, take your two daughters here, lest you be consumed in the punishment of the city. Now, it's really interesting how this is stated in the Hebrew. You're looking for a word that indicates judgment. But the word that's there in the Hebrew is the word avon, which means a rebellious sin, a rebellious act. And so it is used because it's emphasizing both the act and the punishment for the act, the judgment on the act. So he says, they say, are consumed in the sin and punishment of the city. That's all wrapped up in the meaning of that one word. And then in verse 16 What do you think you would do in this situation? Are you grabbing the last couple of things you can, shoving them in your suitcase and trying to get out the door as fast as you can? Not Lot. Lot doesn't want to leave his comforts, and he doesn't want to leave uh, the people that he thinks are his friends. He has completely come under deception and delusion living there. And while he lingered, while he waited, he just sat down and said, well, I'm tired, let's wait, and uh, let, maybe this isn't going to happen. And the men, one more time, the men took hold of his hand, his wife's hand, and the hands of his two daughters, the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. So they they get away, they are delivered, and they are brought out of the city. And then in verse 17 we read, So it came to pass when they, that is the angels, had brought them outside, that he said, Escape for your life, do not look behind you, nor stay anywhere in the plain. Very clear instructions. Don't look back, 
Don't stay down here on the plain. You need to get up into the hills. Escape to the mountains unless you, lest you be destroyed. So then Lot says, and now Lot is going to Lot is going to bargain with them. He says, "Please, no, I don't want to. I don't want to leave. Uh, let me just go to this this town right over here and stay here. I, I just can't escape to the mountains. Something horrible will happen to me." This is what happens when people are consumed in sin. It's blinded their soul. They can't understand what is really going on. They don't really want to give up their sin. They don't want to give up the the consequences of their bad decisions. They want to stay there. And even though they know that something bad is going to happen to them, uh, they they just are, are completely deceived by it. And so he says, see, this little town over here is near enough to flee, and it's a little one. Let me escape there. It's just a little one, and my soul shall live. And he said to him, see, I have favored you concerning this thing also, in that I will not overthrow this city for which you have spoken. So this is one of the angels speaking to him and say, okay, we're going to be gracious to you. You see how God and God's plan extends grace over and over again to Lot, who just really doesn't want to be rescued and really doesn't want to give up uh, his lifestyle living in that pagan environment. And the angel says, hurry, escape there, for I cannot do anything until you arrive there. Therefore, that name of that city is called Zoar. The sun had risen upon the earth when Lot entered Zoar. And then verse 24, then the Lord rained brimstone and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. So he overthrew those cities, all the plain, all the inhabitants of the cities, and what grew out of the ground. But his wife looked back, and she turned into a pillar of salt. So this tells us about the God's grace in providing deliverance and his judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. So we come back to our question, which is, what actually happened in Sodom? Now, there are four basic objections that you will hear to the literal, historical, traditional interpretation of Sodom in Genesis chapter 19. The first is that Sodom, and also they'll say the same thing about Gibeah in Judges 19, that they were punished for breaching the rules of hospitality. See, we see the contrast between Lot, who's so generous and so hospitable and invites him into his house, and the people in Sodom just aren't hospitable at all, and they are just ill-mannered. So God, that's their real sin. The second objection is that the word no really doesn't apply to uh, sexual relationships. They just wanted to get to know these visitors, and that's all there was to it. But if we, well, we'll get to the answers to this in just a minute. This, this third is that the sodomite sin wasn't homosexuality. It was arrogance. And they'll go to uh, Ezekiel chapter 16 to prove that. And so we have to be careful when we look at Ezekiel 16 to understand what's going on there. 
It's not saying that their sin was arrogance. Oh, it it was a sin that under underlay the sin of homosexuality, but it's very clear that it was homosexuality. So, so this that's their claim. It's it's that they just aren't treating their guests right, and they're filled with arrogance. And the fourth thing they'll say is Sodom fell because of its unconcern for the poor and the needy. So that's that's all wrapped up there uh, together. So we get into Genesis. We got to trace our understanding of what the Bible says about homosexuality in the Old Testament. So I want to start in the Old Testament, and then I want to take us through uh, some key passages. But before I do that, let's address these four things. First of all, regarding this issue of hospitality. Lot clearly demonstrate hospitality. He has been living there for a number of years, and he has uh, risen in the ranks to be a leader in the uh, community. And so he has provided hospitality for the visitors. But it's not just a matter of the fact that uh, the, these the people in Sodom were breaching the rules of hospitality. I want you to look at exactly what happens. So they come out and they demand in verse 5, they demand that Lot take let these two men throw them out of his house so they can do with them as they will. The fact that it is not stated that it is homosexuality is clear from the context that it is. First of all, in verse 7, Lot says, don't do something wicked, number one. Number two, and this is the clearest evidence, is that he tells these men to take his two daughters who are virgins and they can do anything to them that they want all night. It's very clear that he understands that their desire is sexual. So that negates the first, um, the first statement, the first objection. And the second objection the second point is that the angel's response uh, implies that they understand the actions on the part of the sodomites. The angels grabbed Lot, brought him inside, and they struck the townspeople blind. That's pretty harsh if the only problem is that the townspeople just aren't being very hospitable and they've got bad manners. So why would they... Why would they be so harsh on them if there weren't something extremely dangerous uh, about to happen? Furthermore, when we go to Jude 7, which we've looked at in the last couple of weeks, last couple of lessons, it clearly shows that their actions were sexual in nature. So it's not just that they aren't being very uh, hospitable. Second, the word no refers to acquaintance, not sexual relations. Well, that's just uh, not true if you work out the details. If you, it's true that the word to know is used 
with a variety of nuances in the Old Testament, but word meaning is not determined by choosing one of the options in the dictionary. Unfortunately, there are a lot of pastors who don't know enough about the languages, and they'll just say, oh, this word could mean A, B, C, or D. Well, let's choose that one because that's the one that I want to preach on. You have to look at the context and what it's talking about, and there's at least 15 other biblical passages. For example, in Genesis 4.1, Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to uh, her first son, which was uh, Cain. Also in Genesis 4.17 and 4.25, and in Genesis, uh, uh, here in Genesis uh, 19.8 and 24.16, and in Genesis 38.26. In all of these passages, plus a number of others, the word has this implication of intimate sexual knowledge. So in the fact that uh, that Lot also, as I pointed out in in the first objection, is offering a female substitute for sexual relations makes it clear that that's what they mean by knowing them. Uh, the third objection is that the sin was not homosexuality, but failure to accept and treat the guests with dignity is very similar to the first one. And uh, the same response. And then the fourth one is Sodom fell because of the unconcern for the poor and the needy. So I want to address Ezekiel 16, 49. But before we get there, I want to set the stage by looking at some vocabulary. Very important. We go back to the first chapter of Genesis. This is when God creates the human race. It starts off in Genesis one twenty six. let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the sea, fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, it's important to pay attention to the pronouns here because some of these pronouns are singular and some of them are plural. Notice we have God speaking, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. That speaks of the Trinity, the triune God. He is spoken of as Elohim, which is a plural noun. And what you'll hear in most Hebrew classes and seminary classes is this is a plural of majesty but when you have a plural of majesty, you don't necessarily have a plural plural pronouns everywhere. And th- that is, uh, it, it's not teaching the doctrine of the Trinity, but the doctrine of the Trinity underlies the use of these plurals. And so he says, let us make man, and it's Adam. That is the Hebrew word for, that you, it can be used for a man or a male, but it also refers to the human race. And so let us make man, it's a singular noun. Let us make man in our image, let them, wait, wait a minute, let them, where, them is a plural pronoun. Them refers back to man because 
the, that confirms the usage there that man refers to the human race. So it's envisioning not just Adam, and not, and I don't think it's just envisioning Adam and Eve. It's envisioning the whole human race. So let us create. Maybe it'd be better to say, let us create mankind in our image. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, etc. And then verse 20 says, says, 27 says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, it's just too bad that God was not up on all of the different genders and that he just is so patriarchal that he has to use all these masculine pronouns. Well, that has to do with grammar and every inflected language. You're talking about Latin or Greek or or English to some degree, Spanish, French, Russian. They all have, you have masculine nouns, you have feminine nouns. Have you all seen this meme going around that said God created two genders, but Democrats invented all the others. See, there's two problems with that. First of all, there's three genders. Gender isn't sex. Gender is has to do with the classification of nouns. I had a Greek professor who, when he was began to teach us about nouns, he said, people have sex, nouns have gender. Don't confuse them. So... We have um, a masculine pronoun here to refer back to Adam, which here God created Adam, that's the human race, in his own image, in the image of God he created him. And it's a masculine pronoun because it refers to the masculine noun Adam. And that's the reason, and because Adam is also the name given to the first man, that is why we have these terms in our language. It's mankind and not humankind. I remember writing for Pastor Theme, and we had sent a manuscript off to somebody who'd come out of Barack and gone off and gotten brainwashed at some liberal school getting her Ph.D., and she came back and she was trying to change every noun to correlate the gender, and it just made me sick that somebody had not recognized how they were already uh, had already converted to paganism in their thinking and yet they still thought they were a good Christian. You have to stand up to these things because language is important and that's exactly what part of the battle is in this whole debate over homosexuality. What are we going to call it? We can, you know, in in um, in Britain, the legal terms, in English, legal term for homosexuality is sodomy. But oh, they've made that 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 just so horrible. You can't say that. The technical legal term that is used in legal documents and laws in England is buggery. But again, oh, you can't say that. That's not nice. So we have to use some other kind of word. But see, that's what the issue is. You change the language, you change the significance. And so we can't, we shouldn't let the other side dictate the words that are used. 
we it's mankind because the whole entire human race derives from Adam. Eve wasn't created separately. She's created from Adam's rib, so there is a genetic continuity with all human beings so that a new man can come along and die for the entire human race. And when you start saying, using all these other kinds of words, humankind, where you you use this language, it is buying into the worldview of the gender-confused people. And we just can't let that happen. And the problem with Christians, you go get a job somewhere, you're going to be told that you've got to use that kind of language. And if you start compromising at that point, you're going to be a failure because you are going to start doing exactly what Lot did. You're going to go along to get along, and before long, you're going to start having to approve of a lot of stuff you really don't want to approve, and you're going to start feeling very uncomfortable. And we're in a culture war, and you've just become a casualty. And it's very important for Christians to figure out how to stand up like Daniel did without getting in somebody's face and blowing everything up. But at the same time, you've got to figure out to use, how to use some tact and not give in to the pressure to conform to their worldview. And the battle is going to be over words. And, and we have to think very carefully and very critically about how we're going to handle these things. And it's been tough. There have been situations where there have been uh, school teachers who have been taken to court because they won't use the kind of pronoun that a gender-confused student wants them to use. And in one case in Virginia, the uh, the, the teacher was doing his best, and he would always refer by using a plural pronoun, them, or he would refer, instead of using a, uh, a masculine pronoun, he always referred to the individual by his name. But then, of course, they want to change their name to a girl's name, and now you've got another problem, so it's just difficult. At some point, we've just got to say, I'm not going to be pressured into the world's thinking. Seems like Paul said something about that in Romans 12 too. Do not be conformed to the world. Don't be pressed into their mold. And see, you have too many pastors who don't have the guts to get out in front of people and say, you can't compromise. You start compromising on the little things, before long you're going to be compromising on the big things, and you're compromising for a paycheck. And you're going to have a tough conversation at the judgment seat of Christ over that. Okay. So we see that God uses technical language here. Adam for the human race, Zakar for male, and Nekva Nekva for Nekeva. Nekeva for the female. Nekeva. Zakar and Nekeva. This refers to male and female. Now, we have this same language showing up in Leviticus. Leviticus 18.22. You shall not lie with a male, Zakar, as with a woman. So the you is addressing you as male. You shall not lie with a male, as with a woman. Woman is Isha. 
Most of you are familiar with that. Adam was called Ish, man, and that can be man or male. And Isha is woman. It's not as technical as Nekeva, but it is clearly talking about a female. It's an abomination. It's that A-H at the end of uh, Isha that makes it a feminine noun. If a man, Ish, lies with a Zakar as he lies with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. Now, there's a key word, and that key word is going to be important when we get to Ezekiel 16. It has defined homosexual, same-sex sexual relations as to'eva, that is an abomination. Now, turn with me as we get ready to close. Turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 16. Ezekiel chapter 16. Now, Ezekiel chapter 16 is a little bit of a difficulty to interpret this because in five somewhere around 590 B.C., just before the Babylonians are going to come in for the third time and destroy Jerusalem, God gives Ezekiel, who's already out of the land and he's in Babylon, a word of indictment against the Jews. And he says, look at verse six, chapter 16, verse 1. Again, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, cause Jerusalem to know her abominations. Who is this addressed to? Jerusalem, at this time in the late first temple period, caused Jerusalem to know her abominations. Well, we have a good example of what abominations are here in Leviticus chapter 18 and in Leviticus chapter 20. And then there's this description of how Jerusalem began and how uh, God nurtured Jerusalem along and how in verse 8, God says, yes, I swore an oath to you and entered into a covenant with you and you became mine. And so there's the picture of this baby that's just been left on the side of the road and God brings life into this infant, and then uh, makes a covenant with the infant, cleans the infant up, and there's all this description about how God provides and and all this rich cloth and um, and glorious ornamentation and jewelry and showing all the blessing of God on Jerusalem. And then the indictment begins in verse 15. But you trusted in your own beauty and played the harlot because of your fame. And a number of times through this passage, you have this phrase, played the harlot. What does that mean? It is not, it is using sexual infidelity as a analogy for spiritual infidelity. They've entered into a contract with God, but what you have is that they have violated that contract and they have become unfaithful by going after other gods and goddesses. And this is manifested a number of different ways. One of them is listed in verse 20. You took your sons and your daughters, 
whom you bore to me, and you sacrificed them to be devoured. So they're sacrificing their children alive to the false gods and goddesses, and that was typical in the fertility religion. But what was also uh, that what also happened in the fertility religions is that you had sexual uh, sexual engagement with the temple prostitutes of the worshiping Baal or the Asherah. And so all of this just, you know, unbelievable activity. So in verse 20, 22, when we read, and in all your abominations and acts of harlotry, it's, it means there's literal sexual activity going on with these temple prostitutes, but that is also talking about their, the spiritual adultery and unfaithfulness toward God. And in, and so God announces this judgment against them down in verse 23. In verse 26 talks about committing unfaithfulness, committing harlotry, prostituting themselves to the Egyptians and um, giving themselves to those who hate them down in verse 27. And it, all of this goes on. And then let's just skip down because we set the context here that he's talking to Jerusalem and then when we get down into uh, starting in verse uh, 44, uh, there is an indictment of Jerusalem. Your elder sister is Samaria, who dwells with your daughters to the north of you, and your younger sister, who dwells in the south of you, is Sodom and her daughters. Now, this is talking about something that is at that present time. Now, Sodom had been completely destroyed by this time. So this isn't talking about literal Sodom. This is assigning to Jerusalem the name of Sodom. This happens in Isaiah several times where God indicts Jerusalem and calls her Sodom. And so when when we read down here to verse, um, we look at, looked at verse... Uh, 49, look, this was, the, uh, this was the iniquity of your sister Sodom. She and her daughter had pride, fullness of food. Now, this isn't talking about ancient Sodom. This is talking about Judah at this time. Pride, fullness of food, abundance of idleness, neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and the needy. Now, that's the verse that homosexual advocates would go to and say, see, there's no mention of homosexuality there. Well, whether you understand this to be referring to Judah at this time or whether you're, you're understanding it to talk about Sodom, verse 51 or 50 destroys that. They were haughty and committed abomination before me. So it doesn't matter, ultimately, whether it's talking about Judah in 590 or if it's talking about Sodom. The point is that they committed abominations, and that's been defined as homosexual activity in part back in Leviticus. They were haughty and committed abomination before me. Therefore, I took them away as I saw fit. Samaria did not commit half of your sins, see, but you have multiplied your abominations more than they and have justified your sisters 
by all the abominations which you have done. So Samaria has already been taken out under discipline back in 722. So what we see is that the sin of Sodom is consistently linked with abominations, which is related to sexual perversion, sexual sin, and homosexuality. So next time I want to come back and we want to talk some more about uh, what the New Testament teaches. But the one thing we have to recognize is that homosexuality, while it may have like some other sins, like murder and some other things, may have some horrific social consequences in the immediate time frame and in a person's life and his psychology and in a family, that it's a sin like any other sin in that it violates the standards of God. And Christ paid for all sin. He didn't leave one out. It's not a devastating sin. It's not a sin that's going to cause you to lose your salvation or that you can't ever be saved. And we're going to have to look at that because it's listed in a list of sins in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. But it makes it very clear that the believer has to deal with everyone. There's, there's no one who hasn't sinned in one way or another, and arrogance is the root of all sin. And the problem we have today with a lot of Christians that are in the battle against same-sex marriage is that they're filled with self-righteous arrogance, and they're filled with hate, and they're filled with anger, and they're legalistic, and they think that if you've committed these sins and we permit them, then these people are going to go to the lake of fire. And that's not what the Bible teaches at all. We have to, whether a person is involved with uh, sins of arrogance or sins of the tongue or sexual sins, we have to be representatives of the grace of God and the goodness of God and the reality that God forgives sins and that these sins are not the issue. The issue is a person's walk with the Lord and let the Lord deal with these things in a person's life. So we'll come back and look at what the New Testament says next time. Father, thank you for this opportunity to go through these passages to understand the seriousness of what happens to a nation, a culture, a society that is permissive and in promiscuousness and the horrible consequences that this can bring on a nation. And we pray that you would help us that we all have have friends or family members or co-workers that we know are homosexual and that we learn to treat them in grace and kindness and be a, a representative of your grace and the offer of salvation because we know that in many cases they are uh, they're, they're struggling on the inside and they desire to know uh, that they can have salvation. And Father, we pray that we might be instruments of communicating that. In Christ's name, amen.